I'll be uh, reading from the Bible now. Uh, we're continuing our series through the uh, letter to the Galatians. Uh, but first, uh, I'll be reading from uh, the prophet Isaiah, from chapter 49. If you have the Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 596. So from verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And now from the letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. That's on page 943. Again from verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers has infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be, might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the, to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I made the point that although these writings were not written to us, they continue to have authority over us. They weren't written to us, but they continue to have authority over us. 
Today, I want to make a further point. And because they continue to have authority over us, though not written to us, we need to approach them with humility and patience. Humility, to be open to learn. Humility, not to impose upon the text what we want it to say, but to learn what it is saying. And patience, working with something not written to us, but to others in maybe very different contexts. Patient to respect what we're reading, not to give up quickly when it doesn't have something to immediately for us, but patience to work with the text until its treasures are uncovered for us. Now, that, that requirement is especially needed when dealing with the letter to the Galatians, and particularly our, t our text this morning, which is chapter 2, 1 to 10. Let's get started then. The Christian faith proclaims that the God who gives everything existence has acted decisively in human history in the death, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That message, which claims the allegiance of everybody, commonly called the gospel. Now, the truth of the gospel has been contested by an unbelieving world from the beginning. But not just an unbelieving world. The truth of the gospel has also been contested from within the Christian movement itself. And this began within a decade of when it all started. Paul's letter to the Galatians, written in the late 40s of the first century, is a case in point. It's a hastily written, urgent plea from the apostle to the Christian communities, which he had founded in southern Turkey, read all about it in Acts 13 and 14, telling them, to, telling them to pull back from abandoning the truth of the gospel. You see, after Paul had gone there and founded the churches by, pre by preaching the gospel, others turned up, others believers, for so they appear, let's call them the agitators, they put Paul down in, a, in no uncertain terms and told the Gentile believers that Paul had been inadequate what he'd said and they must adopt some of the distinctive practices of Jews, even though they were all actually Gentiles, especially male circumcision. And that was having quite an impact on, on the Galatian Christians. Now, this may not seem such a big deal to us, but Paul saw a terrible danger in this. This is what he wrote. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of God and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. What the agitators were in fact doing was compelling Gentiles, or to use a speak somewhat anachronistically, pagans. I say anachronistic because the word pagan was not used until much later to describe um, those who didn't follow the gospel, but we'll use the word pagan for the first century right now. Pagans to become like Jews in order to benefit from Christ and belong to his people. Compelling Gentiles to become like Jews in order to benefit from Christ and belong to his people. Now, the division between Jews and Gentiles had been profound and significant. One people knew and served the living God, the Jews. The others were filthy idolaters who constantly threatened Jews to compromise and become unfaithful to the Lord. And this caused a great tension. Why, before God had revealed his son in Paul, he himself had been a leading activist, a 
opposing those pagan encroachments on Israel. He'd, he'd become zealous, as he put it, openly embracing that toxic combination of serious prayer and, when necessary, violence designed to purge the Jewish world of blasphemous wickedness. But when God made his light shine in Paul's heart to give him the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ, all that changed. With greater clarity than anyone else, Paul came to the conclusion that because, as he writes in the opening words of Galatians, the Lord Jesus Christ has given himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, because of that, then Gentiles who gave their allegiance to Jesus Christ were no longer impure and pagan idolaters, but fellow members of the family of God. There was no need for them first to stop being Gentiles to share in the gospel. Christ had changed all that. And what, what Paul saw the agitators denying was the power of Christ's sacrifice. By continuing to impose the divisions of the present evil age on the churches in Galatia. By just adding to an unchained religious system, Christ on top was in effect opposing the gospel from within the Christian community. However, one of the issues that, that really bedeviled Paul was this. He was not the only apostle. There were others. He wasn't the only divinely commissioned agent of the gospel. There were others, others, others who'd been apostles before him. Others who had known Jesus personally. Others, maybe even a member of Jesus' family. Others who had not been violent persecutors of the church. Others who were the great ones esteemed in the great mother church of the whole Christian movement in Jerusalem. There's more than a hint in Galatians, and here I'm using mirror, what's called mirror reading, that the agitators denigrated Paul by implying he was both dependent on the other apostles and paradoxically they disagreed with him. That's why Paul writes what he writes in our text today, Galatians 2, 1 to 10. So far in Galatians, Paul has made a point of emphasizing his independence from anyone else, including the other apostles. He insists he has direct divine authority. Remember chapter 1, verse 11 from last week? I quote, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And so he stayed away from the others. In fact, other than a brief stay with Peter, it's not till 14 years after his transforming encounter with the risen Christ that Paul finally has a meeting with the leadership of the Jerusalem church, the other apostles. Not till 14 years later. By this time, Paul, with Barnabas, is giving leadership in the Christian community in Syrian Antioch, where both Jewish and Gentile believers mixed happily together. In the Acts of the Apostles, Luke tells us in chapter 11, verse 26, that it was here in the church of Syrian Antioch that the disciples were first called Christianos, Christians, Christians. Now, it's not always easy to fit what Paul tells us of his itinerary in life in his letters with Luke's picture in Acts. It's all rather complex. But I think this visit he made, which he talks about here in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, is the visit that Luke writes about in Acts 11, verse 27 to 30. 
Let me read it to you. Page 893 in the Church Bible. This is, this is Luke writing now. Right? During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. By the way, I just say, Jerusalem is always up, no matter where you are, because it's the capital, and you always go down from Jerusalem to anywhere else, right? Even though, even though Antioch is to the north of Jerusalem. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. End of quote. You'll notice in Acts 2, verse 2, Paul does say that he went up to Jerusalem, quote, in response to a revelation. That's most likely that prophecy of Agabus that Luke records telling of the worldwide famine. Famines were fairly frequent occurrences in that world, and there was one in the mid-40s. So alerted to this food crisis in Judea, the Gentile and Christians in the community in Antioch decided to send relief to the Jewish believers down in Judea by sending it to the elders of the Jerusalem church by Barnabas and Saul. You'll notice that Luke, at this point, uses Paul's Jewish name, Saul, here, whereas Paul, in his letters, always uses his Roman name, Paul. Here's how Paul describes the visit himself. Now we're in Galatians 2, verse 1. Quote, Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along too. And while he was there, Paul at last has a meeting with, the, quote, those of high esteem, as he puts it, that is, the great ones of the mother church of the whole Christian movement. There is Peter or Kephas, his Aramaic name that Paul uses, no doubt others of the twelve, plus Jesus' brother, James, who's risen to prominence, and possibly others as well. So the big question is, what happened when they finally got together, this mob? What did they make of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles? Well, let's consider the answer under two headings. Galatians 2, 1 to 5, not compelled. Galatians 2, 6 to 10, nothing added. Galatians 2, 1 to 5, not compelled. Taking advantage of finally meeting with the elders of the church in Jerusalem, Paul clears the air about what he's been doing. Galatians 2, verse 2, I quote, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running or had not been running my race in vain. That last phrase to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain, is an allusion to the servant in Isaiah 49, which seems to have been a favourite passage of Paul. Like that servant, and you might say all of us in ministry from time to time, Paul is wondering whether he's been wasting his energy going in the wrong direction. I don't think he means he's wondering if his gospel is right. I think the issue is rather this. Will there be an agreement between him and the Jerusalem church? Or will the unity of the family of God 
of Jew and Gentile together in Christ that Paul's been proclaiming be compromised. The response of those esteemed as leaders will let him know. Now the thing is, Paul took into that very Jewish gathering an uncircumcised Greek believer, one Titus. You almost wonder whether Paul took him deliberately, actually. He says, I'm taking Titus with me. Now it all becomes very practical and personal. Will they, as Jews, conservative, observant, will they welcome Titus as a brother in Christ? Or is he, despite everything else, still a filthy pagan who needs to be circumcised to belong? And this question rose because there was division in the room. Paul writes of what he calls false believers, literally false brothers, who had infiltrated our ranks to spy on our freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. There's a faction in, this ch in the group who've raised the question of Titus not being circumcised and putting pressure on. And yet, as Paul writes in verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Because, verse 5, we did not give in to them for we did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now the issue was not circumcision as such. I imagine everyone in the room, other than Titus, was circumcised. That wasn't the issue. And twice later on in Galatians, Paul says it's not the issue. Verse 6 of chapter 5, quote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. That's chapter 5, verse 6. Or in chapter 6, verse 15, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. That's Galatians 6, 15. Well, what is the issue then? The issue is compulsion. Compulsion is the issue. Verse 3 again of chapter 2. Not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And the problem is compelling Gentiles to behave like Jews in order to belong. That's the problem. And as we'll hear in three weeks' time, when we go back to Galatians, having a little break, but coming back in three weeks' time, when Peter in Antioch, when, he, when Peter went up to Syria in Antioch, he got spooked. He fitted in and then he suddenly got spooked by some people from Jerusalem and pulled back and separated himself from eating with Gentiles, believing Gentiles. Peter did that. And Barnabas too. And Paul gave him a stinging rebuke. You see it in chapter 2, verse 14. You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it you are now trying to force, same word in Greek, compel, compel Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Well, that's the problem. In fact, at the very end of Paul's letter to Galatians, when he wrote in his own hand, the letter was on the whole, I think, was dictated, but Paul would write a kind of bit at the end. His critique of the agitators is severe. Quote, verse six, chapter 6, verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. It's this compulsion which denies the truth of the gospel. Compulsion to become circumcised, to be a full member of Christ, culture, to eat kosher food and so forth, to 
resist such compulsion is to preserve the truth of the gospel. But Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. When you think about it, that, that's quite a breakthrough, actually. And I think a great credit to the esteemed leaders who, as devout, believing Jews, were still able to welcome an uncircumcised Greek believer as one of them. Like so much else going on at this time, it must have felt strange against their upbringing. But that's the difference the gospel of Jesus Christ made. That's the first heading, not compelled. Now the second, chapter, six, chapter 2, verse 6 to 10, nothing added. That is, nothing added to Paul's gospel by the Jerusalem leaders. This is important because the agitators, back among the Galatian churches, were adding to Paul's gospel, which they said was inadequate, adding the requirement that to be a proper believer in Jesus, you must be circumcised, etc., etc., etc. You know, Paul writes about this, as you may notice in verse 6, in a slightly odd way. On one hand, it's very important, contrary to what the Galatians have been told, that the Galatians know that on the question of circumcision, Paul and the Jerusalem apostles are one. But on the other hand, Paul is concerned not to give the impression that he is in any way dependent upon them for their approval. But remember, his gospel is not of human origin. So in verse 6, he has a bit of a bet both ways. Listen to this. Quote, As for those who are held in high esteem, whether whatever they were makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism, they added nothing to my message. <laughs> high esteem, but not to me, is his answer. The point is, they recognise the validity of Paul's special commission to the pagans. Verse 7 and 8. On the contrary, he writes, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also working with me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So they expressed their common standing together. It was a meeting of equals. Verse 9, James, Kephas, that's Peter's Aramaic name, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. The word fellowship is the word that means sharing together, of equality, of uh, coming in common. The right hand of participation. When they recognised the grace given to me, Paul writes, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, which I think means they're happy for Paul to go up around the Roman world and not, not, not spend too much time in Judea, I suspect, is what they meant. There was something they added, actually, but something Paul was already keen to do. Verse 10. All they asked was that we should remember, continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along, which, if we understand Acts to be correct, was the reason for the visit in the first place. Now, I might add that this happy state of affairs was still quite fragile. Because we don't understand the Old Testament scriptures that well, not steeped in them and practice, it's a no-brainer to us that all this business about circumcision and food laws and so forth is irrelevant to be a full member of Christ. But it's not a no-brainer. It was a revolutionary implication 
of the crucified Jesus being Lord and Messiah. A revolutionary implication. And sadly, sometime after this happy meeting, Peter, and even Barnabas, for crying out loud, badly wavered on this issue. Just as the Galatians were wavering on the issue. That's for three weeks' time when we return to Galatians. Don't miss it. Because Titus was not compelled to be circumcised and because nothing was added to Paul's gospel, we can be confident that Paul was at one with the other foundation apostles. Christ giving himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age meant that a new age had dawned. And so that all who give their allegiance to Jesus as Lord, whether Jew or Gentile, are full members of the Messianic people. Or as Paul will write later in Galatians, fully children of God. <clears throat> fully recipients of the blessing promised to Abraham, justified by the faithfulness of the Messiah, waiting by faith through spirit for the hope of righteousness, all one in Christ Jesus. That's the authentic gospel which was preserved in that meeting in Jerusalem. Well, we've listened with patience, I hope, and humility. To this writing which has authority, continual authority for us, though obviously not written to us. What then does it say to us? Two brief things. My first response to this is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Thankfulness that this gospel, that this truth of this gospel reaches us this morning. See, in this matter, most of us, if not all, are Titus. We're Titus. And we should never take for granted that in, that in this great matter, Paul in particular stood firm here. He told the Galatians it was so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That is the truth, that Jesus had dealt with sin and ushered in a new age, and by entrusting ourselves to this risen Jesus Christ, we too are cleansed from sin and become one with Christ's people. Therefore, our first response is thankfulness for the truth of the gospel has been preserved for us, for you, for me. My second response is to realise that we too must preserve the truth of the gospel of this matter. How do we do that? Well, in particular, in our relationship with each other and other believers in Christ. But that was the issue there, right? We'll hear later on Paul say this in Galatians about the radical implications of the gospel. Quote, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean for your relationship or my life with other believers? It means there can be no racism amongst us. All one in Christ Jesus. It means there can be no sexism amongst us, all one in Christ Jesus. It means there can be no classism amongst us, no tribalism in the body of Christ, all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, that's a truth of the gospel to be preserved amongst us. So not just in what we say we believe, 
But in what we do, and especially in how you welcome, and I welcome, fellow believers who on the surface are very different from me and different from you, how we welcome them as one in Christ, that too is preserving the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the way in which Paul and the other apostles stood firm at this point for the truth of the gospel. We are thankful that in Christ, the old age has been gone and the new is here. And we too can share as full members of the body of Christ by our allegiance to Christ. And we ask you to help us to preserve in our own context this truth in how we treat each other and others in particular. For Jesus' sake. Amen.